0: We're going to be talking about something today that is really a, a fundamental part of what it means to be a human being and what it means to live a fulfilling and satisfying life. We're going to be talking about purpose and what it means to live life with a sense of purpose, with an awareness of, of what one's sense of purpose is, and uh, and then sort of the nuts and bolts that are involved in following through in living with a sense of Purpose. The author of the book at hand, Life on Purpose, is Victor Strecker, a professor and director for innovation and social social entrepreneurship at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. He has written extensively on a variety of topics, and uh, his quest to understand the nature of purpose and living with purpose is rooted in a real-life tragedy with the untimely death of his uh, beloved daughter, uh, in the wake of that sorrow, he came to wrestle with some of these questions and uh, came to uh, a new and deeper understanding of, of what it means to live with purpose and uh, the way in which living with purpose can be truly transformative on, uh, on, on, a, on a host of different levels. Uh, his book published by Harper One and in print of HarperCollins is titled Life on Purpose, How Living for What Matters Most Changes Everything. Professor Victor Strecker, we welcome you to The Morning Show.
1: Thank you, Greg. Really appreciate being on.
0: Happy to be talking with you about uh, about this book. I have to tell you uh, also, I, I just think it's worth saying, is that uh, I, I approached your book, despite the fact that I'd been told very good things about it, I approached it with a little bit of skepticism, just uh-huh. in the sense that there are plenty of books out there that uh, purport to sort of explore the same thing, but uh, quite often in ways that are um, maybe a little bit touchy-feely, a little bit vague, and uh, and don't maybe in the end add up to very much. I have to say that your book ended up being, a, in a sense, I suppose to me, a, a, a pleasant surprise in that it was uh, grounded in science and uh, and also very, very deeply thought out. It was not just sort of the casual musings of somebody on what it means to live with purpose. I just wonder, well, as you set out to write it, uh, were you mindful of the fact that there are plenty of other books that uh, have maybe pretended to explore this, but not with a lot of depth?
1: Well... Uh, <laughs> First of all, I just want to thank you. That's about the nicest compliment I could possibly receive on my book because it is so fitting with my mindset going into it. I am a scientist and I get a little bit tired of so many self-help books from quote unquote experts who, uh, you know, throw out things that have very, very little, if any evidence supporting them. And uh, you know, I don't mind at all self-help and self-improvement. I think it's one of the great things that we have as human beings, that we can actually change and make serious changes in our lives. That's wonderful. Um, I just wish that we would show a little more care and exhibit a bit more care in in how we do that and what we decide to take on. And that can come from science. Uh, But also, uh, interestingly enough, it can come from 2,000-year-old philosophy, I've discovered. And from very very smart people such as Aristotle and Seneca and many others. So I so appreciate you you mentioning this. I spent a lot of time over 3 years in thinking about this book and researching uh the science of this book. I went through literally thousands of articles and over 200 research studies and over 200 research studies are in here, but I tried to write it in a way that would be very palatable and easy to follow and understand and uh, but at the same time as accurate as I could possibly make it. So thank you.
0: I touched on uh, part of the catalyst for your own personal exploration of this and ultimately the writing of this book, but uh, I think uh, our listeners need to hear in much more complete fashion uh, sure. about this real-life loss which you suffered. And uh, sure. and maybe you could take us uh, in, inside uh, that sorrow and and give us a sense of... of how that sorrow ultimately generated this uh, this really powerful experience for you.
1: Yeah, um, and with, without getting too maudlin about it, um, my daughter uh, was born healthy in 1990, and her name is Julia. Uh, we have an older daughter, Rachel, but Julia was born healthy, and uh, six months into her life, uh, she caught a chickenpox virus, you know, the kind that simply causes a rash usually and a fever for a few days, and it goes away, and, you know, all kids get this. But a very, very small number of kids uh, end up having this virus attack uh, an organ that that is serious, and the virus attacked her heart, destroyed her heart, and she started losing weight. We didn't notice anything for for a while, but then she, she was losing weight, and... Uh, Finally, a cardiologist saw her and said, wow, her heart is completely destroyed, and um, she's going to die within the next few months unless something extraordinary is done. And uh, that extraordinary thing had to be a heart transplant. It was the only hope that she had. And I don't know about you, but I'm a pretty normal person. I don't think about heart transplants that much. And suddenly, you know, from your child being somewhat sick and, you know, a little complainy and, um, you know, crying a bit more than a typical child and not gaining much weight um, into she's going to be dead in a few months was was pretty extraordinary for us. And then saying heart transplant is kind of like saying, well, you need to fly to Mars suddenly and and come back. It, It was just such a strange experience. And the biggest issue for us as I started reading up on heart transplants and learning more about them, is that only about half the children at that period of time, I don't know what it is now, but only about half the kids who were waiting for hearts got them. And then even if they did get them, uh, only half of them survived uh, past five years. So we we really needed to decide whether to list her for a heart at all. And she was one of the early children to... Get a heart. We, just, we did decide to, get to list her for a heart. She did get a heart. And that changed my whole experience of living, quite honestly, Greg. Mm. Um, it, it's kind of like when, when everything was working well, you know my life was fine. I was, you know an academic, a, a young academic, but I was getting you know all my research grants that I was writing, and I was publishing a lot, and I was doing the standard career thing. And I thought, wow, good, after I get tenure, maybe I'll golf more or play tennis or whatever. And I just started thinking about, you know, this is a job. And then when my daughter got sick, I started realizing, wow, what's going to be on my headstone when I die? Uh, the number of journal articles on my headstone, the, you know, the grants that I've written, uh, my frequent flyer miles, because I travel a lot in public health. And, and I, I started her, her life, actually, and our decision to give her a big life because we didn't know how long she would live, kind of transferred to us. We started thinking, wow, you know, we should be living big lives as well, because we don't know when we're going to die. Nobody does. We don't know how long Julia's going to live. If we list her, she gets a new heart, we're going to live every day as if that day might be her last. Why not do that ourselves? And that changed me fundamentally, Greg. Hmm.
0: I want to read just a portion of this opening chapter where you kind of explore this Uh, As you are first exploring this possibility of of something as dramatic and bewildering as a heart transplant, you write, As hard as it was even to think about this option, it was a very uh, real consideration that is the alternative of allowing your daughter to simply die in peace. We had no idea what would happen if she were to receive a new heart, no idea what the quality of her life would be. We were on the front edge of this wave of ice-cold water and would be for her entire life. The discussions with family, my wife, Jerry, and older daughter, Rachel, were hardly idle dinner table chatter. The topics were, what is a good life? And what is a life worth living? What if Julia died when she was three? How about nine? What about the quality of those years? Would we be happy with the decision we were making? And, of course, as you've already told us, you ultimately did opt for that decision to yeah. uh, place her on the transplant list. I wonder if you could just say a word about these discussions that you were having at a time uh, when Julia was too young to be part of those discussions. Uh, but with you and your wife, uh and your, and your daughter, who was relatively young at the time as well. Yeah. I mean, how does one discuss something like that?
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> we had to, for one thing. And first of all, where do we discuss it? We decided to discuss it at the dinner table, what we now call the gathering place. So we gather at the dinner table every evening. Uh, we did as a family, and we still do. We don't just sit in front of the TV and eat our dinner. We actually do sit. And we talk about our day. We talk about uh, what we need to be doing. And so that changed us. We, we sat around and we just said, what is a good life? What is a life worth living? And we decided that we would need to give Julia a big life. That, that was fundamental. We brought in relatives as well, of course. Uh, many relatives would come in, my, my parents, uh, my wife's parents, they would come in. We'd have discussion with them or friends And people would bring up issues, but never had we ever considered thinking so philosophically about life and what a life is worth living until Julia had this issue. In a way, it was a a gift to us, quite honestly, Greg. Hmm. And then, um, so we did live a big life. She ended up being one of the first heart transplant recipients. Uh, She needed a second heart when she was nine, and she almost died then, actually. But she came back, and she she had an amazing... uh, life and we did a lot of things. I travel a lot because of my work in public health, so I'd go to the far east, I'd go to Europe a lot and I would bring her or her older daughter Rachel and we would take cooking lessons in Thailand. You know, I, I never just said I'm going to work. I'd say, "Hey, I think I'll bring Julia and maybe Julia's boyfriend." And we'd have a great time. And and we would do special things all the time. So I feel like she had a pretty amazing life. And the last day that she was alive, she turned to her boyfriend the night before and said, I'm so happy that I could die now. And none of us expected her to die. Um, In fact, she had just been checked out, seemed fine. But that night she did die in her sleep unexpectedly. And that was at 19. Um, And when that happened, uh, I felt like I kind of lost my own purpose in my life. It was, uh, you know, of course you go through profound grief uh, that is expected, but I started wondering whether I could get out of this in some positive way. A lot of people experience what's called post-traumatic growth. We always talk about post-traumatic stress or, you know, PTSD, but I thought, I wonder if a person can grow from an experience like this. And it turns out that there's research about this. People who have gone through loss of loved ones, Um, through major illnesses such as cancer or heart disease or even earthquakes or or tsunamis, major experiences, horrible experiences, the Gulf War coming back, if you can repurpose your life, it turns out that you not only can reduce post-traumatic stress, but you can actually experience post-traumatic growth. You can learn from these experiences, become richer as as a result of that. And I was hoping to at least survive this experience, but what I've found in repurposing my life uh, in a much deeper way is that I actually have a better life now. Hmm. I have a bigger, richer life. Um, Of course, I I grieve for Julia every single day. I still do six six years later, and anybody who's lost a child can tell you that. That doesn't go away. At the same time, though, I think that my life is more technicolor than it ever was.
0: Hmm. I wonder if you could... uh... Expand on one intriguing thing you talk about in this chapter when you are talking about the way in which you s- conceived of what Julia's life could be and should be, uh, given this reality with which all of you were living, and and it's what you were already talking about this notion of of a big life, a big full yeah. life, and yet you say we were not referring to a make a wish life, as right. in the make a wish. Uh, uh, organization. You say it's a wonderful group with a powerful mission, but we couldn't spend every day of Julia's life in Disney World. Um, So uh, I I think you mean that in a sense, both literally and figuratively. Uh, In in what way did you go about designing a big, rich, full life for her that was not that sort of Disney World life uh, that some people might more immediately imagine.
1: Yeah. uh, Thank you for bringing that up, Greg. Um, Because I had mentioned before, we had taken cooking lessons in Thailand and done a lot of fancy things. And that's really great. But you know, the day to day activities were the most important. It's the friends that she had. Um, It's the nurturing from my wife, Jerry, her mother, um, every single day. It's the wonderful school that she could go to and the teachers that took care of her and you know if she was sick uh and in the hospital the nurses that got to know her really well the doctors who knew her um it's just the day-to-day life experiences that are the most important aren't they it's her dog fred you know who would sleep on the bed on her bed with her you know when she was sick and hang out with her all the time and um it's those experiences, and making those experiences very, very deep and rich and meaningful. Maybe caring a little less about what the Cardassian sisters are doing this week. <laughs> Make, maybe caring a little less about, you know, just the things that are, are not quite so important, and focusing on what matters most, focusing on purpose. And, and she had a very strong purpose in her life, too. So and, and just letting her live that life being with her friends, with these experiences every single day, uh, the wonderful boyfriend that she had, that sort of thing. Those those are the meaningful things, the day-to-day experiences. And she, in that sense, had a very, very big, very rich life.
0: I want to leap ahead to a question that I was going to ask at the end of the interview because you address this concern towards the end of your book. Uh, but somehow I feel prompted to ask this question now. Yeah. And I was so glad that you address it uh, in the book, because as I was reading your book, this thought kept coming back to me in, in the back of my mind. And that is, it's it's well and good for somebody like you or somebody like me to dwell on matters such as purpose, li- living a purposeful life, uh, given the the lives that you and I and probably a lot of our listeners are blessed to lead, wh- right. which in a sense allows for <laughs> the chance to reflect on weighty questions, even, even right. whether or not we choose to. But that for many people, life is a much more harsh, deprived reality. Uh, some whether you're living in actual poverty or or otherwise a, a life which is really mostly deprivation and feels like it's all about just one foot in front of the other, just trying to stay above water. And for somebody like that, I mean, maybe that's the only purpose in their life they can possibly conceive of. I think you speak very persuasively to this, that even for someone for whom life is not nearly so privileged as it is for me and it is for you, uh, that these are still tremendously worthwhile questions uh, for for them to consider. Can you speak to that,
1: please? Sure. In in one of my chapters, uh, I interview three people from sub-Saharan Africa uh, who have gone through really uh, unbelievable problems and deprivation. Uh, two of them were AIDS orphans, one walking to, to school when he was very young, was hit by a, a truck and became a paraplegic, and he was an AIDS orphan. Um, there, there's so many other uh situations that I I talked to so many different people asking about purpose and asking this pointed question is talking about purpose in life, if you have nothing or very, very little, is that a silly thing to do? Is this really at the top of the pyramid kind of when you have everything else and this isn't, a, you know, this is kind of an upper class uh, yuppie thing to be thinking about, and I had such a powerful response from these people. They said, you people in the West think that, that's, that purpose is something that only elite can have. Purpose sustains the poor. Purpose provides hope for people. And without purpose, we would die. Um, it's funny. I have a, a doctoral student who just graduated, got her PhD, and she was studying purpose in life in inner-city Detroit with very, very poor kids in um, a broad range of different neighborhoods. And it turns out that the kids who were from the toughest neighborhoods, the most disintegrated neighborhoods, were the kids who had the strongest purpose. Um, So it could well be that we're absolutely wrong about thinking that purpose is just for those who have everything. It may be particularly relevant and essential for those who have nothing.
0: And it's so, uh, in a sense, counterintuitive because I think yeah. you're exactly right. We tend to think of this question as something that uh, uh, a wealthy person might only come to contemplate at the end of a life that was uh, ended up being much more empty than they ever realized, or maybe in the throes <laughs> of a midlife true. crisis, uh, yeah. somebody might look at themselves in the mirror and kind of realize, uh, I've. I, I, th- I thought it was all about my yacht and my Ferrari and my whatever, and I realized, no, I, I need purpose. Um, and it's something else entirely when somebody is living on food stamps um, yeah. and can't afford their doctor bills and so on. We, we, and, and we, don't, way, we don't imagine that these questions have any kind of place in, in, someone's, in, 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 in the life of someone living that kind of life. And I suppose part of the problem is we don't spend enough time thinking about those kind of people and the lives that they live.
1: Well, I'm totally with you, Greg. And maybe it's a good time to talk about what we mean by purpose. Um, I don't want this to be viewed as um, something that you have to meditate in a cave for six months to find or uh, go out and get advice from your life coach to find. Uh, Purpose can be found in your very immediate surroundings and the first step in terms of purpose is really to start thinking about what you care about the most What do you value and it doesn't matter who you are everybody has certain values that they care about Maybe it's their friends. Maybe it's their family Uh, Maybe it's uh, you know at work. What do you value? What are the things that you care a lot about in your work? What do you care about in your community? What do you care about personally? So thinking about those things that you value the most um is the first step and then setting a goal around those as an example i care a great deal about my students at the university of michigan and about teaching those students so i set a goal around that to teach every one of my students as if they're my own daughter julia uh that is a big goal because or that's a big purpose in my life because i have 250 students and they want to see me you know Uh, In office hours, they want to talk about a broad range of different things. Uh, They have various needs. And when they do, I try to treat them. I'm not always perfect in this by any means, but I try my best to to treat them as if they're my own daughter. How would I act if this student were my daughter, Julia? And that takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of self-control, what we call willpower. It it really does take a lot. Um, And so I think about my life in terms of being prepared to reach and achieve that purpose, align myself with that purpose every single day. Hmm. And and so it's very real. It's very immediate. This is not not something like, I want to do good in the world. We're not talking about some sort of greeting card purpose. It's something that's just (laughs) very, very immediate and something that I can align myself with every single day.
0: Right. And where this really started to make sense to me was, was in the first full chapter, where you talk about a couple of different people you encountered, and the way that they live their lives. I mean, with with real courage and uh, and 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 vividness yeah. and energy, and uh, and they end up in trying to explain, you know, why they would, why a runner in the Boston Marathon would run back towards the sound of the screams rather yeah. than run away. Uh, and the answers are things like this is what I do or this is who, who I, I am. am, and yeah. and in a sense that's what you're talking about is that m- too many people live their lives without having any sense at all of of what I do or who I am. I mean, what I do in the sense of you know yes I have this job, but in 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 the, in a deeper sense of what is it that I do or want to do, who is it that I want to be. Uh, those are the kind of questions that are really worth
1: pondering
0: and exploring. In
1: psychology, there's um, a question that's often asked people about whether they feel like they're running on automatic. And if you are running on automatic thoughtlessly, then that those people tend to have all sorts of problems later in their lives. So how do you get a person to stop running on automatic and to start living for what matters most consciously, uh, thoughtfully? Uh, in a in a kind way, in a loving way.
0: We're speaking with Victor J. Strecker about his book called "Life on Purpose: How Living for What Matters Most Changes Everything." Uh, as you explore in the second chapter the nature of of what purpose is, or what it means to live with with purpose, uh, one of the things that one of the concepts that gets mentioned is this sense of agency uh this sense that what we do matters or can matter can make a difference versus uh it's all it's all a crapshoot it's all life it's all fate it's all luck Uh, and how essential is this matter of agency of of believing in one's own sense of agency uh how how crucial is this and maybe if you don't mind point this out in the, in the different spheres that we were talking about earlier, because I think sometimes people who are living lives of deprivation, that's one of the first things they lose is any sense of agency in themselves. Right.
1: Well, and, and it's important to preface this answer with the fact that our environment has a huge role in what we're able to become. And I'm the, you know, I would never deny that. Um, you know if we're born poor it's very difficult to just raise yourself up by your bootstraps it's very difficult if you're you know racism sexism uh these these issues are pervasive you can become weathered by this there's a hypothesis called the weathering hypothesis that the more that this is heaped on you the less you're able to actually uh pick yourself up on the other hand i think we can go too far and just say well the world has an influence on me and I have very little choice. And I wanted to emphasize this phrase in the book, we are who we choose to be, so we should be very careful who we choose to be. And I really do believe that as well. That's that's what life is, this interesting conundrum of many factors influencing your behavior and your life. But at the same time, you do indeed have choices. Uh, when my daughter died, and in the very first part of the first chapter, I'm on Lake Michigan and I'm rowing out in my kayak. It turned out to be Father's Day that day and it was just a few months after Julia died. And I really had a a crossroads experience. And I've spoken now with many, many thousands of people in various talks around the country about this issue. And so many people come up after my talk and say, I had a crossroads experience too. This crossroads experience is where you can decide what you're going to do. You can either decide to die or to kind of shrivel up, or you can decide to live. But if you decide to live, you're going to have to change your life. You're going to have to do something very serious. And whether this is related to alcohol or drug abuse or whether it's related to suicidal ideation or whether it's related to depression or many, many, many other things, this this idea that we can choose who we are going to be. So we should be careful who we choose to be is an important thing. And it often gets lost, I think, in our culture. I I think increasingly, we have lost our purpose. We've lost our meaning in the world. And that could be for a lot of different reasons. As we modernize, you know, uh, sociologists like Emile Durkheim in in the 1880s said, we will start, as we start Losing our purpose, we'll start killing ourselves. Yeah. You know, he wrote this book called Suicide. And, and uh, I think that's true. You yeah. know, in fact, we've seen this dramatic increase in suicide rates. Um, what's going on?
0: Right. And, of course, one thing I found very poignant was uh, uh, at one point in your book when you quote very eloquent words by a talented writer who ultimately ended his own life uh, in suicide, David
1: Foster, David Foster Wallace, Wallace,
0: who yeah. writes, uh, wrote, Learning How to Think really means learning how to exercise control over how and what you think. It means being conscious and aware enough to choose what you pay attention to and to choose how to construct meaning from experience. Because if you cannot or will not exercise this kind of choice in adult life, you will be totally
1: hosed. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that. And here is a person who, you know, was chemically depressed, you know, genetically, he clearly had severe, severe depression and suffered from this his whole life. And, um, and yet he can say something about human agency. He talks about choice there. And I think that's so important. And that is the conundrum of the lives that we live. Uh, whether we have free will philosophically or not, we can debate, you know, forever. Uh, at the same time, I believe personally that we should live as if we have free will. We should live as if we have choice and we should try to exert that choice because that's what makes us human. Hmm.
0: You, uh, you utilize a couple of other terms that uh, may be of, of great interest uh, to people and helpful in this discussion. Uh, terms which date all the way back to the time of the ancient Greeks. And uh, these are terms which help us contrast between living for uh, more immediate pleasure versus living something that, in a way, that speaks to uh, a, a, a higher, maybe even perhaps divine, sense of purpose within ourselves. Tell our yeah. listeners about these two terms.
1: Yeah, well, um, Aristotle said that uh, we have two kinds of happiness. One would be hedonic happiness, and of course that refers to hedonism, which is the Uh, pursuit of pleasure. And we all pursue pleasure. Um, Certainly, we love good food and good drink and sex and things like that. All of those things are are part of pleasure. But Aristotle said an interesting thing about that. He said, that's all fine. It's all part of us. But if that's all we live for, then we are like grazing animals. (laughs) And, Mm. And I thought that was so interesting. He said, something gives us, there's another thing that gives us greater and deeper happiness. And that's What he called eudaimonic well being. Eudaimonic means that you are in touch with your inner diamond. This diamond is this part inside ourselves. In fact, Socrates used to stop, he was kind of a street philosopher, and every once in a while he'd stop in the alley he was speaking to his class with and run out somewhere and consult his inner diamond. The diamond, or some people would pronounce it Daimon, D A I M O N, uh, is the true self and he'd consult this true self inside. And by the way, Thomas Merton, the famous uh, Catholic theologian and monk, um, talked about the true self as well. So many people talk about this inner light, this true self. The Hindus have this term called the Atman, which is this inner self, this inner God-like inside you. And all Aristotle is saying is, you need to be in touch with this inner self, this true self. And He said, it's not just being, it's not just having a purpose. And by the way, being in touch with your true self is how I interpret, I interpret him as saying, that is your purpose, being in touch with your true self. And it's not just having a purpose, though, it's being aligned with your true self every day. So how do I discover what my true self is? And that's this when he talks about virtues and core values and character. Um, But he, he said, you need to be in touch with that. Understand what it is, observe it, and remember Socrates once said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Aristotle essentially said, and I'm paraphrasing, that the purposeless life isn't even worth examining in the first place. Hmm. So you see this wonderful two sides of the coin. Examine your life, but examine your life that has a purpose. Right. Both of those things are really important. And, and so this eudaimonia... Uh, or eudaimonia, uh, contrasted with hedonia, Uh, there are two sides of the coin. And I think when we think about happiness in the West, we think about hedonia, about hedonism, about pleasure. And yet the Greeks and many people since then have found far more pleasure by finding what their true self is and being in alignment with that. In other words, living a purposeful life.
0: Right. It's so interesting because if you... Are careless in exploring some of this or thinking about this or talking about this uh one can uh, one can do something that that you think is living in the moment or or being fully present in the moment, but it real it really isn't it's 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 very much on a on a on the surface it's a shallow thing, and it's just what's going to give me pleasure right now in this moment versus right. something deeper and of of more lasting value. Uh, and uh, the, the Greeks have a lot to teach us that we're still, of co- course, coming to grips it's with. It's amazing, <laughs> uh,
1: you know. After Julia died, Greg, I started reading uh, Seneca, and Seneca wrote this very long, twenty-page uh, letter called "Letter to Marcia." Who had, and he was kind of like the Anne Landers of his time, I suppose. And this woman named Marcia uh, wrote him a letter and said, "My son died three years ago at the age of sixteen, and I grieve for him at his grave." more now than I did even after he died. What do I do, Seneca?" And Seneca wrote this amazing 20-page letter that actually was very helpful to me now. Um, These Greek philosophers, I I never thought about reading this kind of work or poetry, uh, like by Rumi, for example, and then suddenly it was as if they were writing letters to me personally.
0: We're speaking with Victor Strecker, and we're talking about his book, Life on Purpose, How Living for What Matters Most Changes Everything. Uh, I'm, I'm glad we have a few minutes to sort of uh, talk about some of this in in, in in, a sense, more practical terms or in terms of, of how one might apply some of this uh, to one's life. I appreciated how the third chapter called Our Best Purpose uh, includes some examples of what various people have have used as an answer to kind of the question of of you know what what is your purpose in 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 life and i think of all of them that are listed my favorite uh, it's because it's one of the briefest is uh, stud sturkel who wrote to make a dent <laughs> to yep, make a isn't dent that neat? i really like that and there are several others that are sort of along that line and others that are a bit more uh, involved or intricate uh, or, or maybe more sort of uh fastened to To specifics Um, but ultimately in this chapter you tell us that when we talk about purpose it is a higher order goal that has deep value and also the fact that one's life can have more than one goal because sometimes we play more than one role talk about the importance of goals and roles and how they can kind of work together
1: Yeah, well, that's one of the toughest things about purpose, that we have multiple purposes, don't we? So I have a family purpose to be an engaged husband and father and now grandfather of uh, of a baby girl who's going to be one on July 3rd named Madeline Julia. And she's an amazing child. I just saw her in Colorado this week. And, uh, And that's really important, but that sometimes conflicts with my work goals. Um, because, you know, if I'm going to be an engaged, uh, fully engaged uh, professor and teach every one of my students as if they're my own daughter, and I'm going to also come home and be a fully engaged husband, well, we all know how that works. Sometimes we get home and we're so tired and we feel like having a drink and reading the newspaper or just doing something just to kind of unwind. And then our spouse may turn to us and go, you're not here. And you go, well, of course, I'm here, I'm not in San Francisco. And you know, that that spouse may go, no, you're not here. You're not present with me. So the real question is, how do I fulfill multiple goals? Um, and that's something that I've actually been studying a great deal lately. And it turns out that people who report more energy every day and more willpower or self-control every day are better able to align themselves with multiple goals that are quite different from one another. We know that our purposes and have domains to them. And these different domains sometimes run counter to one another. And in order to be able to be aligned with those different domains, you need energy, kind of wind in your sails, and you need a rudder. You need good self-control to reach both of those harbors, those purposes at the same time.
0: Hmm. Uh, you offer up some wonderful thoughts on how one might try to come to grips with what your own purpose or purposes can and should be. And um, I wonder if we can just take a couple minutes to uh, talk our listeners through these six steps uh, with the understanding that uh, it, it it makes a lot more sense to, to actually take your book in hand and then explore these matters in in, in even more depth, but uh, sure. at least sketch these six steps because I think yeah. these are so helpful to consider.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, the first thing to do is to to really ask yourself what what do you care about the most? Um, what are the things that most matter to you? And in my book, I lay out fifteen different values. Um, such as expertise or security, tradition, my family, relationships, kindness. Uh, I I go on. Uh, But you can pick out your own. Uh, Ben Franklin had his own set of virtues and core values. Uh, Other people have. Abraham Lincoln did. But you can can build those out, two or three of those, maybe up to five, and set goals around those. Think carefully about what what those, you know, how you would set a goal around those. At the same time, then, there's what I call the headstone test. And this would be thinking about what you might be like, or what, what would you want on your headstone if you die tomorrow? And when I ask my students to take the headstone test, they all go, oh, no, I don't want to do it. And, you know, they think this is so morbid. And at the end, I have students come up thanking me. Saying, "Wow, I was kind of living on automatic until I started thinking, what would be on my headstone?" Uh, so these are kind of ways to consider more what your um, what your purpose might be. Um, another aspect of thinking about your purpose and try to assemble it is to divide it into these different domains what is my work purpose if I if I do work or if I'm a student what is my purpose as a student what is my family purpose what is my community purpose what is my personal purpose and by the way some might be really hedonic um, you know hedonistic my personal purpose is to enjoy love and beauty that is super hedonistic you know that means I love beautiful things fine uh, but my family purpose is more transcendent and uh, which is related to my, you know, more, more true self, to be an engaged husband, father, and grandfather. So I start thinking about these different domains. Um, it's important to try this on, kind of like the suit. You write these down. You write down your purpose based on what your core values are. You've set goals around this, this purpose. You think about what might be in your headstone. Um, and you start trying this suit just to see whether it fits right for a few days. And if it does, and if you feel like you can live this life, and, re- and if it helps you remove the clutter, then that becomes a pretty good purpose. And then finally, wear the suit. You really want to start wearing this. Hmm. and uh, living this purpose. I have my purpose written down in my home office, and I look at it every single day. Right. And I ask myself, did I live in alignment with this purpose? Hmm.
0: I want to ask you about a distinction that you make in one of these six steps, the one where you suggest that we think about a person or people that we would like to yes. emulate, but then right away you say, not Imitate. (laughs)
1: Right.
0: Uh, Explain why that, although I I can imagine why, I want to hear from you the importance of that distinction and what you think that distinction actually is between imitating and emulating someone whom we admire for the purpose of their lives.
1: Actually, this goes all the way back to Aristotle. And Aristotle talked about emulating uh, a person that you thought was a great person. And he even talked about not imitating that person. It's it's essential that you don't just try to be that same individual. If we want to be like, you know, if, if Humphrey Bogart or, you know, whoever it is, uh, is a hero to you, you don't want to act exactly like Humphrey Bogart. Um, Woody Allen did that in this, this movie called Play It Again, Sam. And it just showed how silly it is to imitate a person totally, because you can never do that. Um, emulating the, the virtues of a person, the character of an individual, is another story altogether. Thinking about the great people of the world um, that you might want to emulate uh, can, can make you a much, much better person. And I'll let you decide who to emulate.
0: We are talking with Victor Strecker about his book, Life on Purpose, How Living for What Matters Most Changes Everything. Uh, we have very little time remaining, but there are a couple of other things that uh, I think are worth at least touching on. And again, we, we uh, encourage people to ex- explore these matters in your book in, in greater detail. I think one of the more potentially confusing uh, concepts in your book is that of self-transcendence. That's at least (laughs) one of those things that, at a glance, doesn't immediately make sense or fold easily into this backdrop we're talking about. What is the importance of self-transcendence, and what do you mean by that?
1: Right, right. Well, the idea is to think about a purpose that's bigger than yourself, and that's all we mean by self-transcendence. So you are transcending yourself. You're transcending uh, what a lot of people, like psychologists or even 3,500 years ago, the Buddha, talked about the ego. You remove the ego. You transcend. You rise above your own ego, um, above your own defensiveness. So often now and increasingly, I think, Greg, uh, our society it, it view, it view the ego almost like a castle wall. Um, we can live within our own castle wall now in terms of the media that we listen to. Um, we can avoid everybody who disagrees with us pretty much. You know, think about um, Thanksgiving, for example. Well, okay, Uncle Joe is coming and he, you know, he's very politically different than us, so don't bring up politics. I, I view it in an opposite way. Bring up politics. Let's talk about it, but let's all strive to transcend. Our egos when we talk about politics and talk about the things that we care about the most what do we value and from that we can actually have a very interesting and hopefully fruitful conversation um, and, and we don't do that anymore we tend to live in our bubbles in our ego walls more and more we need to transcend that now of course when your wall breaks open uh, you know like the loss of a loved one uh then you see more clearly very often, and you notice this with people who have are going through cancer treatment or have had major heart attacks or lost have lost children or a loved one, lost their job. Um, you see that their ego kind of breaks open. But I think a way for all of us to, to see reality more clearly is to think about transcending their wall, thinking about things bigger than themselves. And we know that people who do think about things bigger than themselves end up doing much better themselves Uh, They've even looked at this with organizations Greg looking at companies who? transcend revenue concerns who think about things more than just revenue about the community about their Customers about their employees. They end up doing better Revenue wise they end up making more money. There's a bigger return on investment by a large amount and there are a number of studies that have shown this so thinking about things bigger than yourself whether you're an individual or a family or an organization, makes you a better individual, a better family, or a better organization.
0: Hmm. You uh, also uh, explore some ways in which there are different things that can really make a huge difference in the living out of our purpose, including uh, the notion of 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 uh, space, (laughs) S-P-A-C-E, real quick, uh, outline this for our listeners.
1: Well, what I was trying to do here is come up with a pretty simple core set of positive behaviors we could think about every day that give us more energy, more willpower, which we're now treating increasingly as muscles that can be strengthened, fueled, trained, uh, but they can also be depleted in order to live in alignment with our purpose. And I came up with this concept of space, which refers to sleep, S for sleep, P for presence, which is like mindfulness, A for activity, C for creativity, and E for eating. So sleep, presence, activity, creativity, and eating. I try to give myself space every single day. And I also strive toward trying to figure out which of those space behaviors gives me the most energy and the most willpower every day because everybody's different. Um, I find, for example, that being creative gives me a ton of energy and a ton of willpower and allows me to be aligned every day with my purpose. Um, for example, teaching every one of my students as if they're my own daughter, that takes a lot of energy and willpower. So I walk to work every day. I try to be creative. I try to eat well. I try to sleep well. Um, so I, and, and I meditate every day. In fact, I don't give myself an alcoholic beverage at the end of the day, as much as I want it, until I've meditated. So I'm a great meditator.
0: You really help us think about this in a very comprehensive fashion, and I think whether someone is easily inclined to uh, approach life this way or if if this is a bit of a struggle or a stretch, I think there are all kinds of things that uh, just about every person can potentially find here. The book, again, is called Life on Purpose, How Living for What Matters Most Changes Everything published by HarperOne, a division of HarperCollins, and the author, Victor J. Strecker. Professor Strecker, I've really enjoyed your book and enjoyed this opportunity to speak with you about it. Thank you so much.
1: I really enjoyed the conversation, Greg. Thank you.